Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. All right, welcome back to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown. And this is Matthew, who still sounds like Kathleen Turner. Correct. Because this is episode de. Right. And we're recording it on the same day. On the same day, yeah. So, so, so yeah. I, I hopefully am better by now. The episodes get released. In a you few know, weeks. In a so few weeks. I'll be feeling good. So don't, You'll so, be feeling don't good. Don't feel for me then. It'll be, it'll be past. Yeah. Feel, yeah. Feel for him now. What, before you even know. Before you even know. <laughs> Unless you're in the Umbriard, Matthew, you've been complaining in the Umbriard about your man cold i have not <laughs> it's been on my personal account i'm kidding <laughs> the views information and opinions expressed during the dark poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of curious cast it's affiliate global news nor its parent company chorus entertainment Dark poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and a Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to dark poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately. October 2008, the friends and family of 38-year-old Johnny Altinger were worried. Although emails and social media messages had indicated Johnny had run away on the spur of the moment with an unknown woman he'd just met, things didn't add up. The messages did not have the same feel as Johnny's typical fare, and he wasn't known for his spontaneity. Police had already spoken with the tenant at the Edmonton garage that Johnny was directed to on the night he disappeared. They'd seen some things that concerned them, but there was no sign of Johnny. Something seemed off with the 29-year-old filmmaker, Mark Andrew Twitchell, the man that the cops had spoken to. Little did the police know that only a week before Johnny had vanished, another man, Jill Tetro, had suffered a bizarre attack at Twitchell's hands after being lured to the same garage. This is Dark Poutine episode 266, Hollow Man, The Crimes of Mark Twitchell, part 2. Gilles Tetro later wrote a book titled The One Who Got Away about his encounter with Mark Twitchell. 
Tetro was a newcomer to Edmonton in the fall of 2008, having recently moved from BC and was looking to connect with new friends and meet a new girlfriend. He logged on to PlentyOfFish.com and began to browse the profiles. A certain allure about the profile with the username Spiderwebs, that's with two Zs, immediately captured his attention. Her profile stood out from the others he saw on the site. The woman in the three photos attached to the profile had blonde hair, piercing, friendly blue eyes, and she was undeniably attractive. So did this woman ever come forward in terms of whose, whose photo was stolen? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Can you imagine you find out that your image is stolen to catfish to try to murder somebody? Yeah, crazy. Horrible. According to Tetro's book, the profile indicated that this woman too had recently moved to Edmonton from British Columbia. This gave Gilles a great place from which to start a conversation. Gilles messaged. Spiderwebs was online and messaged back right away. Tetro indicated that the chat flowed well from the first few messages. She revealed her name was Sheena. Things looked hopeful. Especially exciting was learning that they were in the same Edmonton neighborhood, Millwoods. Sheena asked Gilles if he'd like to meet on October 3rd, 2008. It was a Friday night. She suggested a movie, Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, after a quick bite to eat at a nearby restaurant. After thinking about it for a while, a very short while, Gilles agreed to the date. Sheena said he could pick her up at home at 7 p.m. and gave him a series of convoluted and bizarre directions about how to get there. Sheena's instructions for how to reach her basement apartment were undoubtedly unusual. Tetra was instructed to enter through the detached garage and navigate through the backyard to find the door to her place. Sheena said she was reluctant to give out her phone number, citing concerns about her safety. But Tetro didn't think much of it. Instead, he was eager to meet the beautiful blue-eyed woman who seemed equally interested in him. After a long day at work on Friday, Tetro set out to finally meet Sheena. He couldn't shake the thought of her since they started messaging each other. Following Sheena's detailed directions, he finally found the house but realized she hadn't given him a house number. As he crouched and entered the dimly lit garage through the partially open door, Tetro couldn't help but feel a little uneasy. The garage was dirty and the windows were covered with a dark film, making the place creepy and ominous. Oh, come on. I mean, he had no idea that it was going to be a dark and creepy garage when he got the directions from her. I haven't done anything dangerous, but, you know, when I'm thinking I was going to get lucky, I'd go through winter storm to get there, right? Sure. Yeah, yeah. totally understandable. Yeah. But, but I'm just like, oh, my God, I'm glad this guy is alive to tell the story, though. Yeah, exactly. Tetro continued on his way, passing through the garage and making his way toward the door at the rear of the structure, excited to finally meet Sheena. Suddenly, he felt someone grab him from behind. His first thought was that Sheena was playing a prank on him, but as the person's grip tightened, Tetro quickly realized this was not a joke. The attacker was much stronger than he'd anticipated Sheena to be, and despite his best efforts, he could not break free from their grasp. According to Tetro's book, The One Who Got Away, quote, the first thing I noticed was a black and gold painted hockey mask. I felt as if the wind was knocked out of my sails. I had been set up and there would be no date. The next thing I noticed was the hoodie that covered his entire head. All that kept running through my head was, who was this man attacking me? Tetro felt a sharp pain in the back of his head. The force of the blow made his vision go blurry. 
Next, he felt something poking him in the chest, sparking with an electric blue light each time it made contact. It had to have been a stun gun. The attacker was relentless and continued to zap Tetro with the electrical prod, but the pain was nothing compared to the vicious blows that he'd already received. Tetro tried to fight back and escape, but the attacker had an iron grip. The attacker must have realized that Tetro would not give up without a fight, and then drew a handgun to give him more leverage, pointing it directly at the struggling man. The attacker's words were chilling and sent shivers down Tetro's spine. Get down on the ground. Lie down in your stomach. Put your head down and put your arms behind your back, the attacker demanded. Tetro complied with the instructions, but he couldn't stop struggling. Finally, the attacker pulled out a roll of duct tape from his pocket and started to bind Tetro's eye so he couldn't see anything. Tetro knew that this was not just an ordinary robbery or mugging. His life was in grave danger. As the sticky duct tape wrapped tightly around his eyes, Tetro's entire life flashed before him. He knew he had to act fast. It was a now-or-never situation. In Gilles Tetro's book, The One Who Got Away, he wrote, quote, I ripped the tape off my eyes and then I stood up. I first mumbled, I can't do this, and then turned around to face him and then yelled, sorry, I can't go down like this, with tears streaming down my face. I was now ready to fight for my life, end quote. Despite the attacker's gun, Tetro refused to surrender, and realizing his life was on the line, the attacker again pulled out his weapon, but to Tetro's surprise and relief, he realized it was a plastic toy gun, and this bolstered his hopes of escape. Absolutely. Okay, but why would he have a toy gun? Yeah. This, this guy didn't plan this very well, did he? He definitely planned it. Yeah, but if you're going to be like, try to be a serial killer, you take, get a real gun. Right. But, you know, I find something interesting here, what he said, that moment of, no, I'm not going to go down like this. Mm -hmm. You know, my brother told me a story once where he'd fallen and hit his head mm -hmm. in the sewer system. Oh, dear. And as he was like going unconscious, he said, in his head, he said... No, this isn't how I go. This isn't sort of the thing, way, yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. I think it was in water or something. And just like snapped out of it. Sounds like he had this moment of, no, just no, this isn't going to happen this way. Yeah, it's like his ultimate will took over yeah. or whatever. Yeah. yeah. The scuffle began with Tetro throwing punches at the much larger man, only to feel his blows were weak and ineffective. Then suddenly the attacker headbutted him and the impact of the hard plastic hockey mask left Tetro feeling dazed and in excruciating pain. The attacker continued to rain down blows on the side of Tetro's head, but he refused to give up. Finally, Tetro saw an opportunity to escape and bolted toward the door, leaving his jacket behind in the attacker's grasp. He rolled under the partially open garage door, collapsed, and began crawling toward his truck as fast as possible. However, the attacker was not giving up quickly, and he dragged Tetro back into the garage by his legs. Tetro's determination did not waver, and he found his second wind and stood up, running down an alleyway. As he saw a nearby walking path, he made a run for it, collapsing in front of a couple walking their dog. He pleaded for their help, but they seemed too shocked to do anything except stare at him in disbelief. The attacker appeared on the scene moments later, still wearing his hockey mask and a black hoodie, resembling the infamous Jason from the Friday the 13th sequels. Tetro identified him as the man who had attacked him. The attacker turned to Tetro and casually said, Come on, Frank, as if they were old friends. He then sauntered back to the garage, peering at Tetro from behind the fence like the elusive neighbor Wilson from the TV show Home Improvement. 
Tetro returned to his truck and briefly considered retrieving his jacket from the garage but ultimately thought better of it. Instead, he drove himself home, badly beaten and battered. Tetro then used frozen vegetables to reduce the swelling on his face and went to bed. Despite feeling embarrassed, Tetro considered reporting the incident to police. However, the events from that night continued to haunt him, causing him to see his attacker everywhere and experience difficulty sleeping. That's what PTSD does to you. He shared his experience with friends but never contacted authorities. On November 2, 2008, Jill Tetro experienced something that would terrify anyone when he saw a story on the news about the arrest and charges of murder against the man who'd attacked him, whose name he now knew to be Mark Andrew Twitchell. Jill had no responsibility for the murder that happened. None. Zero. But I would have felt, even though it's completely misplaced, right? so much guilt... Oh, yeah. I survived that maybe I didn't say anything, but, you know, he was a victim. And he, he talks about that in his book. Does he, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, and he's a victim, and, and he needed to do what he needed to do mm-hmm. to to deal with it, right? Yep. But I hope the guy got some counseling because this sort of stuff is huge. Well, that's kind of the way it went down with me. Like, I, I mean, I found out my attacker's name and didn't report it. Right. You know, like it was years later. I just didn't think anybody would find it important because it had been treated so, you know, cavalierly and as though it wasn't important. And you had some embarrassment, probably? Totally, yeah. yeah. Anything to do with, like, sex and all this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a this, this level of shame that p- people shouldn't feel, but they do, right? Right. Like meeting on dating sites, stuff like that. Well... That was my first, for want of a better word, I know it's not a sexual encounter, but that was my first, what I believe to be a sexual encounter in my life. Good. No. After the failed attack on Jill Tetro, Mark Twitchell was terrified. For the next few days, at least, he went to bed and woke to wonder when the knock on the door would come. When would the cops come to arrest him for what he'd done to Jill? They didn't come, though. There was nothing on the news. Perhaps, Mark assumed correctly, Tetro had been too ashamed of falling for the ruse and hadn't reported the assault. Twitchell felt unsatisfied. Rather than chalk up the failed attack as folly, he decided to try again. He created the Gen profile on Plenty of Fish only days after deleting the Spiderwebs account, and it didn't take long before Twitchell had another potential victim on the line. And this one was Johnny Altinger. On October 20th, 2008, Mark Twitchell was interviewed by EPS homicide detective Tabler. Mark's information was consistent with what he had provided to Constable Maxwell. In addition, Twitchell identified two other, quote, partners who had access to the garage, Perhaps they'd changed the padlock and had been moving stuff around and used the burn barrel. Mark agreed to allow a more thorough search of the garage at 5712 40th Avenue Northwest. Upon searching the premises, one of the items that the investigator stumbled upon was a receipt on the floor with an October 15th date. The receipt listed cleaning supplies, rubber gloves, a plastic sheet, and a heavy-duty cleaner. The investigator spoke with Mark Twitchell again and asked him for his MasterCard. Upon inspection, it was discovered that the last four digits of the credit card matched those on the receipt mentioned above. 
Twitchell claimed that he'd only briefly stopped by the garage to drop off some cleaning supplies, but Detective Clark felt it was too much of a coincidence that Altinger had disappeared from the same place where the filmmaker was working. In another interview, Twitchell claimed that on the night of Altinger's disappearance, he had been approached by a man who asked him to buy a red Mazda for 40 bucks. The police followed Twitchell's directions and found the car. It was registered to Johnny Altinger. Other flaws were found in Twitchell's story, and although Clark didn't have enough evidence to keep him in custody, he did have cause to seize Twitchell's car. During that search, police found Twitchell's laptop, traces of blood, and a knife in the trunk. In addition, technicians recovered a 42-page document from the laptop entitled The SK Confessions, which blew the lid off the investigation. SK stood for serial killer. While cops gathered evidence, Mark Twitchell was placed under 24-hour surveillance after police became concerned that he would possibly kill again. They obtained a search warrant and searched his house while his wife Jess took their daughter and left. Jess found Mark at his parents' house and told him the police suspected him of murder. She demanded to know what was going on. In the preceding weeks, Jess had caught Mark looking at a website for married people wanting to have affairs. Mark had claimed it was research for a freelance article, but now he confessed to his wife that it was not true and that he'd even hired an actor to pretend to be a story editor to throw her off. Perhaps the police interest was something to do with that. Jess saw right through Mark, and having had enough of Mark's lies, she left him that night. She did not see him again until his trial and later divorced him. While searching Twitchell's St. Albert home, police found several pieces of incriminating evidence, including Mark's recently washed jeans with blood traces and blank postcards of Costa Rica, where Johnny Altinger was supposed to have gone with Jen. Meanwhile, a document found on Mark's laptop seemed to outline as a fictional account the murder of Johnny Altinger. Despite being deleted, the police were able to recover the document. It began with the words, quote, This is a story based on true events. The names and events were altered slightly to protect the guilty. This is the story of my progression into becoming a serial killer. Like anyone just starting out in a new skill, I had a bit of trial and error in the beginning of my misadventures, end quote. This is a clear reference in Mark Twitchell's failed attack on Jill Tetro. Further on, Twitchell wrote, quote, I just knew I was different, somehow, from the rest of humanity. I feel no such emotions as empathy or sympathy toward others, for example, end quote. He wrote about buying an oil barrel, like the one found in the garage, to burn the bodies of his victims after murdering them. The receipt for the oil barrel was found in Mark Twitchell's home. Then, about halfway into the document, Mark writes about luring a second victim to his garage using a catfishing scheme and posing as an attractive woman on a dating site. The document calls the victim Jim, who we now know to be Johnny Altinger. Twitchell then describes striking the man hard over the head with a heavy pipe once he had him where he wanted him. Jim, the story continued, begged for his life and called out for help as the character called Harry, Mark Twitchell of course, continued mercilessly bashing his skull in. Harry eventually stabbed Jim in the neck, slicing open his jugular, finally killing him. Harry then methodically dismembered Jim and eventually burned what was left of his body in the oil barrel. This was consistent with the evidence discovered in the garage and other places. In one particularly macabre entry, 
Twitchell wrote about using his victim's skull like some gruesome ventriloquist's puppet. He wrote, quote, I grabbed his jaw with my gloved hand and moved it while making a funny voice to make it look like it was talking, and chuckled to myself at the total silliness of it all, end quote. In another document found by police on Twitchell's hard drive titled Profile of a Psychopath, Mark Twitchell gives some profound insights into his thoughts. What follows are a few quotes from that document. Quote, I'm a pathological liar. I've habitually lied my entire life, and despite my incredibly well-adjusted and healthy family life and upbringing, it never stopped. I always apologized, but never meant it, and never corrected the behavior. I lie to my wife and to my family on a practically constant basis. Sometimes I do this to protect them, to shield them. He continued, For as long as I can remember, I have had a distinct lack of empathy. I've always had a dark side I've had to sugarcoat for the world. On my journey of discovering my disorder, I discovered my killer instinct. I've often fantasized about killing people who have wronged me or threatened to hurt me or my family in the future, but that's where it ends. I don't feel like that taking someone else's life is worth the loss of my freedom or the amount of time, energy, or expense one needs to put in in order to conduct such acts. Mark Twitchell's profile of a psychopath continues with more BS. Quote, I can direct my dark energies into my film work. As a producer, I can profit from the sale and distribution of my work, but as a serial killer, I would get nothing more than a quick rush of adrenaline and a prison sentence to follow. I do not have any reservations about disposing of the negative people in this world who deserve a one-way ticket to the afterlife if such a thing exists. Perhaps trying to mitigate what a reader might be thinking of him on absorbing all of this, Twitchell writes, I do not con or prey my family members or friends. I never hurt animals as a child either, end quote. Although he does go on to admit to lying to his wife and being unfaithful to her. So he states he's a pathological liar. Yeah. And then immediately pathologically lies. Yes, right? exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, this reminds me of the fable of the snake. A man starts a, to climb a high, steep mountain, and when a snake asks the man to carry him along, the man says, but you're a snake. And the snake smiles and says, don't worry, I won't bite you. After days of arduous climbing, the man reached the mountain summit, whereupon the poisonous snake bites him. And as he lay dying, the man cries out, well, you said you wouldn't bite me. And his reptilian hitchhiker looks at him and says, ha, you knew I was a snake when you picked me up. It's in my nature. Yeah. Detectives searched the garage yet again and found blood in the cracks on the steel table and a large amount of blood spatter on the floor. Luminol tests revealed excessive amounts of human blood in the garage that wasn't visible to the naked eye. Less than two weeks later, the blood from the garage and the blood found in the trunk of Mark's car was proven to be that of Johnny Altinger. After lab tests confirmed that the blood on Twitchell's jeans and in his car belonged to a human being, the cops had enough. He was pulled over and arrested. Fittingly, perhaps, Mark Andrew Twitchell was taken into custody on Halloween and held until his trial. More after a quick break. And we are back. Matthew, thoughts? You know, I, I think what's so sad about this is you, you take a person like Johnny. Yeah. Who was an original in his own way. Mm-hmm talented had something to actually had something to give to the world right? sure yeah 
um, had friends that would break into his place, you yep. know, to try to find out if he's okay. Yeah. Um, and all, he, he's looking for love and his life is taken away. Yeah. Right? Worse than that, it's taken away by, by I've just, I've, I've nicknamed this guy the hollow man. Yeah. A man without a single original thought in his head. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and really no love to give anyone. Yeah. It's just tragic. A horrified Jill Tetro came forward after learning of Twitchell's arrest on the news and told police what had happened to him. Twitchell was later charged with attempted murder for those events. More on that later. Despite their extensive investigations, the police were clueless about the location of Johnny Altinger's remains for the time being. In a last-ditch effort, they brought Twitchell back to the garage, hoping it would prompt him to disclose the victim's whereabouts. Finally, he relented and provided a detailed map that led the authorities to a sewer where he had concealed the body parts. Johnny's remains were discovered in the summer of 2010. The extensive media coverage of the case sparked a debate inside and outside the courtroom about the media's reporting on the sensational aspects of the crime. Before the criminal trial, the Crown prosecutors and the defense sought publication bans and sealing orders over police evidence to prevent the media from reporting on the case's details until the trial. The media fought against the application, but the judge eventually agreed to the bans, citing concerns about the accused's right to a fair trial. The jury pool was then screened for potential bias from the pre-ban media coverage. When the bans were lifted, a significant media presence covered and reported on the trial. More than two years after Johnny Altinger's murder, on March 16, 2011, Mark Twitchell's trial began. A forensic expert testified that the blood found on Mark's clothing and other items in his possession was that of Johnny Altinger, his alleged victim. Experts stated that Altinger's remains were only partially recovered and the bones showed signs of sawing. Incomplete remains were found on June 4, 2010 in the bottom of a storm sewer between 86 and 87th Streets and 129th and 130th Avenues. Dr. Bernard Banach, Alberta's assistant chief medical examiner, testified that the remains were missing both arms, most of both legs, and the skull. The sternum had been cut in two pieces vertically, and there was another clear indication of a cut through the lower vertebrae. The Crown presented the SK Confessions document as key evidence detailing the murder and dismemberment. The medical examiner confirmed that several sections describing the dismemberment of human remains were accurate and matched the evidence. Gilles Tetro testified that he was lured to the same Millwood's garage the week before Altinger was killed. Tetro said that he went to the garage on October 3, 2008, thinking he'd meet a woman who he'd met on a dating site. In a day of dramatic testimony, Gilles Tetro told the court that he was attacked in the garage by a masked man who prodded him with a stun baton and threatened to shoot him. Tetro testified that he realized the gun was fake and lunged for it. He fought with the masked attacker before he was able to escape. Twitchell admitted during the trial that he'd attacked Tetro, but denied he ever intended to hurt him. He said that he'd staged the attack as part of an elaborate hoax for a book, movie, and online entertainment project. He said that he hoped Tetro would write about the experience in the garage on the internet, which he hoped would generate buzz for his project. Twitchell admitted to killing Altinger and authoring the documents. He argued that he acted in self-defense. He said that he was attacked first. Twitchell claimed that he'd stabbed Johnny Altinger in the stomach, but only after Altinger had come at him with a pipe. Mark claimed he'd been in fear for his life. 
He also had a neat little explanation for the documents, including SK confessions, which described Johnny's murder in detail. Mark claimed that the author's mindset portrayed in the document was sensationalized to write a compelling novel. These were, he explained, works of fiction. Despite his defense, the jury found Twitchell guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced him to life in prison without the possibility of parole for 25 years. The case shocked the nation and shed light on the dangers of online dating and the disturbing mentality of a man who dreamed of becoming a serial killer. Mark Twitchell appealed his sentence, citing media coverage as an unfair bias against him. From the Edmonton Sun article by Tony Blaze, quote, The media attention surrounding my case was so extensive, so blatant, and so overtly sensationalized that it is unreasonable to expect any unsequestered jury to have remained uninfluenced by it, regardless of the judge's instructions in the charge, writes Twitchell, 31. Twitchell also says, quote, Sufficient evidence was presented to raise reasonable doubt on all required bases, but suggests his defense lawyer did not properly, quote, address key points on state of mind and credibility. Twitchell says those key points include his, quote, advanced knowledge of computers and, quote, significant differences between himself and a document buried in the deleted files of his laptop called SK Confessions, with which the Crown called his diary and he claimed was a work of fiction. Twitchell claims his computer knowledge is, quote, much more advanced than the average user, which undermines the implication he would use one to, quote, carry out a crime and, quote, destroys the suggestion he deleted SK confessions to, quote, hide or erase evidence or thought it was, quote, unrecoverable. He also claimed the, quote, significant differences in the philosophical worldview and individual search for meaning between himself and SK confessions was not discussed. Twitchell also goes after the Crown prosecutors for improperly using evidence, including his lying to his girlfriend, his wife, and police to take away his credibility. Quote, This led the jury to make an inappropriate and skewed character judgment, concluding I'm a lifetime liar, he said, claiming the evidence was only supposed to be used to determine the veracity of SK confessions. Quote, The Crown's theory leans too much on fallacies of logic and contradictions in reasoning to make any sense. He concludes, this must be corrected, end quote. He has no concept of the fact that we can all see straight through him. Right. Yeah. Like, we can all see straight through him. Yeah. He's paper thin. It's incredible. Like, you read that and you're like, wow, like, what planet are you on? Yeah, not the same one that we're on. Likely seeing that he would not win his appeal, Mark Twitchell dropped it in May of 2012, so it only lasted a month or a bit. On learning of Steve Lillibin's work on a book about his crimes, Twitchell wrote to the author, trying to steer him away from the associations with the fictional serial killer Dexter, that his crimes merely paid homage to the character. Twitchell wrote, quote, As you're aware... Dexter has almost nothing to do with my case. It has no bearing whatsoever on what actually happened. He continued, There is no root cause, no school bully or impressionably gory movies or video game violence or Showtime television series to point a finger at. It is what it is, and I am what I am. Like he's bigging himself up in a weird way. It's laughable. He's trying to say, oh, don't make it look like I was copying things because I'm unique and special. Right. No, you're not. 
Here's some audio of Global TV's Laurel Gregory with Jill Tetro. In the 2016 interview, Tetro tells why he wrote the book, uh, the one that got away, and recalls the events with Mark Twitchell in the garage on October 3rd, 2008. I know a lot of this is stuff you've already heard me say, mm -hmm. but it's a shorter version of what happened in this guy's own voice. Okay, nice. So it's really, really interesting. So let's have a listen. Tell me why you wrote this. To maybe make some awareness for about online dating and maybe help somebody that could be in a similar situation. As time goes by, is it easier to go back and remember and tell that story? Yeah, it's much easier now. Um, at that time, every time I recalled it, I got uh, nightmares and shivers down my back every time I thought of him um, and, and thought about what happened in that garage and uh, it just it was tough but now uh, it, it's not it, it's really easy now uh, I don't get nightmares anymore so it's uh, I hardly think about it actually how long did it take to get to that place long time yeah years uh, but I think that's why I wrote the book as well. It, it helped me like a healing mechanism, a coping mechanism to to move on. Let's rewind. Mm -hmm. um, summer of 2008, you have moved to Edmonton, recently separated. It was tough to meet new people, so I decided to go on an online dating website and uh, uh, started uh, going through profiles and, and talking to people through there and I uh, finally met this one girl. Uh, I followed the directions she gave me and it uh, led me to this garage and basically she told me that's what would happen and she would leave the garage door open for me and that she lived in the uh, house and as soon as I grabbed the knob uh, a man uh, came from behind started putting me in a bear hug and prodding me with a stun baton onto my chest and uh, punching my head. He pulled the gun out and then I just froze because I'm like, I, I know I can't outrun a bullet. As soon as I did that, he pulled some tape out, duct tape out and, and covered my eyes. At that point, now I can't see anything. So things start rolling around in my head and I, all I can hear is whatever, you know, he, him walking towards my, the back of me and I hear a jingling noise and then uh, that's when like, f life flashed before my eyes and I started seeing pictures of my family and, and I'm thinking and, and everything just slowed down and it felt like it was t taking forever and, and that's when I was able to think wow I, I, if, if something happens to me I, my family will never know what happened to me or if it, they would never see me again. So at that point I said, well, before he, I knew he was going to tie my hands up soon. So I said, I got to act now if I'm going to do anything. And that's when I decided I'm going to fight back. Oof. Like even 13 years later, you hear yeah. a lot of emotion in his voice. Yeah. It's like, I'm so glad he, he, he like he said, you know, he doesn't think about it anymore, really. Yeah. Which is really good. Um, I, I think that the story with the, the way he's describing it, where everything was really slow. Yeah. I, I think there's something really fascinating that I think our brains do. Mm -hmm. Right? So that's, I think, our brains protecting us. The brain slowed down, seemed to slow down what was going on physically, uh -huh. but all these thoughts. So he would, to, to give itself time to like quickly yeah. 
figure out what to do. Yeah. It's fascinating, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Um, I, I just, you know, I feel for this guy. Like I say, I've read his book and it's a great book. Is it a good book? Yeah. It's, it's a really good book about a victim's perspective. And I mean, he, I, I hesitate to call him a victim, more like a survivor's perspective. I'm sorry I used that word. But anyway, he really digs into it in a way that only someone who's been through it can. Okay. So, so check it out. Gilles Tetro, and uh, I'll post a link to it in the show notes. Yeah. The attempted murder charge for Twitchell's attack on Tetro was stayed by the Crown in June 2011. I'm not entirely sure why it was stayed, but, I mean, he's already in jail for uh, murder. Maybe they didn't want to put Jill through any more of this. Could have been a whole bunch of different things. Mark Twitchell sits behind bars to this day. And even after his incarceration, Twitchell was still looking for love online. This time he used his real name on a website called CanadianInmatesConnect.com. And his profile, which had a sketch of his face as the photo, read, Name, Mark Twitchell, Unit 4, Institution Bowdoin Penitentiary in Innisfail, Alberta, Date of Birth, July 4th, 1979, Convicted of Murder, Expected Release Date, 2027, that's probably when he's eligible for parole. I don't think he's going to be released. Interested in corresponding with women. And he wrote, I was tentative about reaching out because I thought I couldn't offer much and doubted anyone could look past my reputation to see the human being. But trying is definitely worthwhile if it means finding just one meaningful, mutually fulfilling friendship. My crime doesn't define who I am or represent me at all. I've made some terrible, regrettable choices in the past, and I've come to terms with the consequences. Now I seek to infuse purpose into my life. Connection is a huge part of that. My creative engine never slows, so I produce artwork constantly and craft novels or screenplays to manifest my relentless imagination. I'm insightful, passionate, philosophical, with a great sense of humor. I enjoy tennis, chess, and clever storytelling. I love the reign and music of artists like Sia, Jackie Evancho, and Arcade Fire. I'm looking for an interesting, intelligent, open-minded, delightfully imperfect woman to relate to and share amusing observations with, as well as a potentially long weekend every few months if it gets there naturally, end quote. I could feel the <laughs> energy from your side of the room while I was reading that, Matthew. So, um... Sounds like he's catfishing again. He uses the word um, mutually fulfilling friendship. Yes. Anybody who meets him will never have a mutually fulfilling anything. Yeah. Because what they'll be looking into is this void in his eyes. Yeah. Right? The other thing why we were getting my, uh, when my hackles were getting I could feel it. I could really feel it. Up, um, he talks about coming to terms with the consequences yeah. for him. Right. Of what he's done. And he doesn't mention the victim at all. He doesn't talk about... He doesn't talk about Johnny or Gilles. He doesn't come to ter say he comes to terms with what he's done. Right. And how it's affected other people. Yeah, it's interesting wording, isn't it? Right. And, yeah. the, and then the last thing is just like, buddy, honestly, don't call it art and don't call it clever storytelling. You know, your art probably consists of... I'm picturing it now, Mike. I'm picturing um, Spider-Man drawn in blue instead of red and called Arachnid Man. Right. Right? <laughs> yeah. Derivative 
tap like that. Yeah. Hey, if anyone wants to write to this guy, you know what? Write to us instead. Yeah. Um, if if you're looking for for some correspondence or yeah, we'll or, we'll we'll or, or we'll send us back. send us a voicemail. Yeah, you'll, you'll get much more out of us. <laughs> yeah. In fact, you'd get much more out of like a pet rock. Yeah. Right. Yep. I know people like this. Uh, I, I, I had a person like this in my life up until a few years ago and it was, uh, it was interesting. This guy's something else, man. Yep. Yep. Um, he is, he just, he has no idea. Mm -hmm. Anyway. Yeah. And that's it for dark poutine episode 266 hollow man, the crimes of Mark Twitchell part two. That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at one 327 5786 or one 327 We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. So we only have one voicemail this week, but it's a goodie. Now, he called back this morning and said, I was a little tipsy when I left that voicemail. And and maybe you shouldn't play it on the pod, but I guess he didn't hear it because it's excellent. It's a great voicemail. It is a really, really good voicemail. So, But the problem is he says it will identify him as who he actually is, and he doesn't want that to happen for a number of reasons. Uh, one is he's in a profession that someone will recognize him. So he called about the Brianne Wolgram episode and gave us some really good feedback about that. You know, Mike, we've been getting so many messages and calls about that episode. Well, I'm really, it's really nice to hear people calling about Brianne Wolgram. Yeah. And mentioning, he related to the case. part of the community. Exactly. Somebody from the community called and said we did a good job. So it feels like that's what we're after. Especially in a case like this where Brianne has yet to be found. This is why we did it. We want her to be in people's consciousness. So maybe somebody hears it and goes, oh, yeah. I was, I was there back I remember then. that. I remember something. Yeah, exactly. Right? Exactly. And maybe it leads to her being found. Who knows? Hey. What? Changing the subject. Sure. So, yeah, I, I loathe Nanaimo bars. Have you ever had a Hello Dolly? What is a Hello Dolly, Matthew? I'm not sure. It's right. just, it's deliciousness. But what is it? Explain it. It, it has condensed milk. Okay. If I remember. And I used, when I was a kid, I thought it was Dolly Parton's recipe because it was called Hello Dolly. Um, it has condensed milk and chocolate chips. And I think there's a little bit of coconut in there. there so they're southern roots. I just looked it up. Okay. Uh, the recipe features a buttery graham cracker crust, semi-sweet chocolate chips, coconut flakes, sweetened with condensed milk, and more for an original recipe that is a sweet treat. Oh my gosh, that sounds really good. Right, so this, to me, Hello Dollies are what Nanaimo bars want to be. <laughs> okay, right? sure. Yeah. And honestly, you know, I chose Nanaimo bars for the show because it's, it, a, it's, it's a, a thing. It's a Canadian thing. It's a very recognizable Canadian thing. You don't like them either, do you? I don't, I don't, it's not that I don't like them. They're not my favorite. Okay. They're just not my favorite. I find them a little messy to eat. Okay. Because the custard always squirts out when you bite into it. <laughs> when you bite down the custard sort of... Uh, oddly, that oddly, oddly, I don't like them. Oddly. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, now Michael feels uncomfortable again. Um, but, Squirting but, custard. But uh, yeah, so I think my mom used to make something like a Hello, Hello Dolly bar because it, it, it looks familiar. 
you know, I'm going to, I'm going to make a hollow dolly tonight. You know what? You know what the even better thing would be to do? What? To make hello dolly bars next Saturday night and bring me hello dolly bars in the morning. And then we can eat a hello dolly bar together and talk about it. They're not called Hello Dolly Bars, they're just called Hello Dollies. Well, it says Hello Dolly Bars here. Well, because the internet gets everything wrong. <laughs> That's true. Well, they do, it is kind of a bar. Yeah. Because you cut them into squares or whatever. They but, could be Hello Dolly Square. But Hello Dolly's just better, right? Oh, well, Hello Dolly. So, okay, I'll bring you some Hello Dollies next week. Okay. Look at that. I just convinced Matthew to make me dessert. <laughs> That's anyway. it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or one 827 We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. And look at that. We don't have any patrons this week, but you know what? That's okay. And it's, it's not that... People have forgotten us. It's because we recorded two shows in a row. And I keep up, people. No, and I, di I didn't save any patrons. It's all good, though. It's all good. It's all good in the hood. Thank you for the Patreonage. We really appreciate that. Like, I can't get over the fact that people have stuck with us as long as they have. And, uh, you know, they do what they do to keep the show going. It means a lot to both of us. So, yeah. Thank you. Thanks to all our patrons and donut money donors past and present for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening, and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. And that is it for episode 266. Oh my goodness. Clickety-click 66. So until next week, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. And hopefully Matthew didn't give me the lurgy. No. But, uh, you know, I'm already sort of feeling a little sketchy. And there's no, I've been with you for two hours. There's no way you picked it up that quickly. Yes, there is. No, there's not. <laughs> you didn't wash your hands and he coughed in my face. I did cough on the microphone. Yes, you did. Don't be using this one. Oh, well, I don't anyway. Okay, bye. Bye.